0: I'm Julia Borstin and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in.
2: Good Friday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Julia Borstin, Nilay Patel, Editor-in-chief at The Verge joins us for the hour. We're grateful to Neelay. Meantime, NASDAQ has gone green to David's earlier point, up about 50 points as we are coming off the lows of the day, coming off the worst day since September as the valuation reset continues to play out. Plus, B of A bullish on Amazon, Uber, and Match, how they're thinking about the impact of inflation and rates on high multiple stocks. And Rivian down after posting its first results as a public company. We're going to break down the expectations for these profit-free companies across tech. But we will start with some of the fear in the market. As you know, tech has been hit pretty hard. NASDAQ was down sharply lower, but higher now. Neely, I do wonder if you think there was an attempt at a short squeeze and whether or not we can, uh, whether that, the, the conditions are right for that to succeed going into year-end.
1: First, I thought you were going to compliment me on my tie. I wore a tie just for you as a guest host, Carl. I thought I got to look good next to Carl. Uh, You know, honestly, I think with tech right now, we're in that strange holiday period for a lot of the big tech companies. Their announcements are made. Their narratives are over for the year. They're just hoping people buy their products so they can have good results at the beginning of next year. And I, I, I feel like I see this at, at the end of every year. And we always look for some explanation that isn't that. And it's kind of always that. They're just out of story to tell.
2: Yeah, Julia, very clearly it's, I mean, the, we can make some hay of the NASDAQ going green and some optimism here on a bounce today. But for the week, it is the worst week for the NAS since February.
0: Yeah. And you have to wonder, you know, as we look at the fact that some of the big cap stocks have outperformed, how much the smaller cap stocks are the ones that are struggling? And I mean, mid and smaller cap. I mean, of the Nasdaq, 65 percent of the components are trading below the 200-day moving average. So it does seem like there is a lot of divergence within the tech sector, Carl.
2: Uh, Sven Henrik of Northman Trader writes, uh, quote, while indices are making new all-time highs, and give the appearance of a raging bull market underneath. There already is a raging bear market in individual names. And Sven joins us this morning. Sven, I think everybody sort of understands what you're referring to. I guess uh, the question would be how long you think that dynamic lasts?
3: Yeah, hi, Carl. You know, it looks really interesting what's happening on that front because even you know, yesterday in the morning uh, before market opened, the S&P futures made a new all-time high. Today, the Russell small caps was down 14%. So it just speaks to the uh, raging pain that's actually underneath. So I'm actually left with a conflict in the charts because I see a lot of signal charts that are massively oversold, like we just had a major correction. And we did underneath. So you can make the case, you know, maybe this all settles down here after OPEX today. And we can have that kind of year-end rally because a lot of tax loss selling has taken place. So I'm looking at positive divergences in some charts like small caps or semis and then make the case for that. The larger issue is the market is still massively dependent on the generals, the top cap tech stocks, not Rolling over in a big way today, as of as of, we're speaking right now, the Nasdaq 100 has held its trend, so that's for now positive. But if it loses that trend, obviously more pain ahead. Maybe early in in the year, when maybe there are incentives for people to lock in some of the profits on the winners mm-hmm. that they so far have held off on taking.
2: Right. I was going to ask you about what how that sets up a January playbook. Uh, and whether or not the January effect will be valid in 2022, and also how much uh, depends on how quickly Omicron burns off if, in fact, that's what happens?
3: Yeah, you know, look, I'm not a medical expert, but it looks like it may be burning off, hopefully, early uh, part of the year. I think the question still remains about the impact of incremental liquidity. My contention all year has been it's been the Fed's balance sheet expanding that's kept the indices indices up. Obviously, liquidity Predominantly flowing into the big stocks, and as that is coming off, you know, past history shows up when QE and somewhere, markets take a hit, and so the the risk is that you know the overall indices still dependent on on these large cap stocks.
0: Yeah, Sven, you've been tweeting your theory that the S and P five hundred is nothing but a Fed balance sheet tracker. With that in mind, what do you anticipate? Um, in terms of how the market's going to be reacting to those Fed movements next year?
3: Well, look, go back to 2009. Every time the Fed ended QE, be it QE1, QE2, or what have you, they were forced to go back into it. And it's not only the, the Federal Reserve. It's the global liquidity equation because during this time period when they were able to roll off their balance sheet minutely so by $700 million, they were able to do it because the ECB and the BOJ kept printing. So I think everybody has to reassess now because this market has been so dependent on this liquidity flowing in and now it's coming out in a quick way now. Uh, There is definitely risk for larger dislocations in the early part of the year. And and I think we'll all have to assess the impact as it it unfolds. I think ultimately what it comes down to is we're talking about rate hikes for next year, which the Fed is now actually forced to do because of inflation still being predominant. uh, We have yet to see a Fed uh, react in any follow through way in a hawkish side when equities are dropping. So I think this is going to be the big gaming exercise of next year between maybe inflation peaking and coming down vis-a-vis how equi- equities is reacting to less liquidity coming in.
2: Yeah, uh, not to mention the disparate playbooks we appear to be getting from the big central banks around the world. That'll be a discussion for next time. Uh, Sven, appreciate it very much. Have a good weekend.
3: Thanks, you too, Call.
2: So how to
0: think about this sell-off? Let's dive into a few top picks for 2022. Bank of America named Amazon its top fang pick going into next year, saying next year will end much better than it begins. The firm is also bullish on Uber, like much of the street, saying that stock has had, though that stock has had a rough run down 23% year to date. Joining us now is the analyst behind those calls, Bank of America's Justin Post. Justin, thanks for joining us. Before we talk Uber and Amazon, Give us a broader sense of how you're viewing the tech sector and um, sort of thinking about all these different factors that we just brought up with Sven, whether it's interest rates and inflation or this question of what's going to happen next with the pandemic.
4: Great. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, As far as next year, certainly interest rates and inflation are top of investors' minds. And when rates are going to go up, you see uh, people applying higher discount rates to stocks. And so some of the higher valuation stocks have come in. On anticipation of that. Uh, When we're thinking about next year, in the the first half, we like the value and reopening stocks like Uber, Booking and Expedia. We do think Omnicom will burn off and you'll see some really strong bookings numbers in the spring. And then we get to the second half, we're really excited about some of the growthier names. Uh, uh, Amazon, they'll have easier comps and we certainly can get into the massive investment cycle they're in. But we think you'll get some pretty good dividends on that for Amazon in 23 to 25 so really like Amazon for the second half of next year.
1: When you think about uh, reopening stocks, obviously Omicron in the background, but do you think there's a, a larger shift to some of the travel stocks like Uber, Airbnb, uh, Expedia? I, you know, What I'm hearing is people are spending months in some of these destinations. They're working there. There's a shift in how we think about work. Are you factoring that into your predictions?
4: Uh, certainly, definitely a shift, and that does favor- uh, Airbnb and some of the alternative accommodation businesses at Expedia and Booking. So uh, like that shift for the sector. But but still, even though people have changed, we still think urban reopening is going to be a big theme next year. Uh, office occupancies are about 40%. Uh, they were 90 pre-pandemic. They have improved despite Omicron recently. And, and we think 40 still has room to go. So we see Uber and some of these travel stocks as the last reopening plays. Certainly added uncertainty, and they've sold off on Omicron. But uh, hopefully as warmer weather comes back and and people want to get outside again, uh, we'll see really strong trends in the spring.
2: Justin, how are you thinking about e-commerce relative to uh, aggregate household balance sheets, meaning uh, excess cash burning off, higher credit card balances, lapping some of the the stimulus payments of the past year? Is that going to weigh on households? Do you expect uh, consumer demand to weaken? And what would that mean for names like Amazon?
4: Uh, Certainly, there's a there's a lot in that, Uh, of of course, with people not getting stimulus, they they might have less to spend. But uh, the job market is incredibly robust and we're seeing people go back to work. And that is a big theme for Uber and Amazon. So there's two parts of the story. You can worry about the lack of stimulus, but all the job openings should be able to replace that. And with people going back to work, in fact, Amazon and Uber in, in my sector are the two plays on that. So that's why we like that dynamic, and and hopefully the job market will stay robust for those two companies.
0: So, Justin, you've given us a good sense of your picks for large cap stocks, but tell us about your small cap picks. I was interested in your picking LendingTree and NerdWallet. Why those two?
4: Uh, uh, Certainly, those are covered by my colleague, Nat Schindler, but uh, certainly thinks they're contrarian plays on on rate hikes, uh, potentially more marketing for consumer finance products. And uh, both those companies will be well positioned for, for that trend next year.
2: And finally, on, on Amazon, you know, we keep looking at on ev- with every earnings print, uh, the revenue figures for each individual unit. Do you think any kind of uh, spinoff or IPO of our AWS becoming a, its own entity is a reasonable expectation for not just next year, but maybe the next two or three years?
4: Um, there is a lot of speculation on spinning off AWS. We don't expect it. Um, We expect the kind of the corporate CapEx cycle to be very strong, taking over for the consumer. Amazon, in my neck of the woods, is the number one stock with the most enterprise exposure. I don't cover enterprise software, but uh, we like their exposure with AWS. I think that's going to be a very strong business um, on a a corporate CapEx cycle. But as far as 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 Amazon, what's really interesting is their huge investment cycle and fulfillment. It's going to depress margins. Uh, We expect lower than street margins next year. But we think the street's going to be very optimistic over the next 12 months, thinking about all the benefits they're going to get from that massive investment cycle from 2023 to 2025.
0: Nile, I want to bring you in here and get your reaction to these picks, particularly Amazon and Uber and what those two represent. What do you think?
1: Uh, Fundamentally, I think the pick on Amazon is it's always a good bet. I mean, all we see is increased consumer demand. There's still latent consumer demand that hasn't been unlocked because of the chip shortage. Chip shortage is driven by demand. So fundamentally, people buying stuff from Amazon on the retail side, great bet always. The flip side, I, I... I don't think Amazon is ever going to spin off AWS. There's only two models, bundling and unbundling. I understand why it's trendy to say it. But that is such a huge core part of how they execute. I think they're going to hold on to it for a long time. On the Uber side, I really yeah, AWS. I think the urban reopening story is much more complicated. And that's that's what I've been looking at.
0: Well, it's certainly more complicated. And let's hope that these Omicron fears do not, to be, do not turn out to be as bad as as, uh, as it sounds like it is this morning. But uh, we're going to continue to watch that. Justin, thanks so much for sharing your perspective with us.
4: Great. Thanks for having me.
2: Close to session highs here for the Nasdaq, up 85 points, uh, being led by some big names. Tesla uh, had a nice bounce, up uh, 30 bucks now. That's a 3% gain on Tesla. Tech check is just getting started.
4: So, If you look at the top quartile of software stocks year-to-date, they're up about 25%. If you look at the bottom quartile of software stocks year-to-date, they're down about 30 to 35%. That's the first time in five years you've seen a negative return uh, on those software stocks. We expected that. Um, and For the first time, we're seeing that dispersion. The best names are being treated better, and they should be because they're going to grow faster for longer.
2: That's Altimeter's uh, Brad Gerstner on the half yesterday talking about the selling in some of the high growth, high multiple names. Our next guest says this is a time to buy the dip. Joining us this morning, Index Ventures' Nina Ashadjan. Nina, you actually think we're at a pretty interesting point in the trajectory of cloud adoption. What exactly do
7: you mean? Well, thank you, Carl. It's great to be here. Uh, It certainly has been a very bumpy road for public SaaS stocks. And if you're holding some of the newly minted tech IPO companies right now, you're not loving what you're seeing. However, if you take a zoom out just for a minute and look at where we are in the digital transformation, we believe we're still very early on in that journey. And that's why we at Index Ventures have been investing billions of dollars in private companies, really uh, pushing this trend. Are you in favor of
2: names that have already sort of proven their mettle, right? Uh, The sales forces in the drop boxes of the world or some of the newer players that we're just still starting to get familiar with uh, in the last 12 months
7: or so? Well, I think if you stop and think about where we are, you know, we had Act One, which are what I like to call the trailblazers, those that really empowered us to go from on-premise to the cloud, like AWS, Google Cloud Platform, Microsoft, et cetera. Then we had Act 2, which are like the sales forces and workdays of the world, which really rode the wave of that migration to cloud. And then you have Act 3, which are the companies I'm really excited about, which is vertical software companies, software built for one particular industry. And there's not a ton of those right now in the public markets. We have Shopify, we have Toast, we have Viva and Procore. But that's really where I see a lot of opportunity, companies that are disrupting massive, often overlooked markets.
0: Yeah. Tell us more about your your thesis here around the vertical SaaS companies. We were just talking about Toast yesterday, and I'm always surprised by how low the penetration is of these tech tools into some of these established fields. I mean, I think that the projection for Toast is in 6% of restaurants by the end of this year or something like that. So with that in mind, what's your sense of the full opportunity here? And what are some of those names we should be looking at?
7: Well, you really nailed it, Julia. I think if you think about where we are in these yeah. massive markets and how many things we still do with pen and paper, things like, for example, booking a doctor's appointment, filling out a car loan, or even signing up your child for preschool, there are massive industries, healthcare, transportation, education, that still use pen and paper to run their business. But a lot of these individuals, business owners, they would love to use software, but they don't wanna buy software from some software developer sitting in Silicon Valley who has no idea what their day to day is like. They wanna buy software that's built by people like them for people like them. And so I think you know COVID helped accelerate a lot of the digital transformation we are seeing. And a lot of people in the public markets are wondering, well, have we seen really all that growth? Is that sustainable? But I'd have to guess if you called any restaurant owner in the United States and asked them, would you rather go back to running your entire business using pen and paper? I'm pretty sure they're going to say no. So I think we're seeing a lot of opportunity there. And like you said, the market penetration is low single digits in some cases, and these markets are in the hundreds of billions of dollars. So we're just scratching the surface for vertical SaaS.
1: I'm really curious what you think there about just the basics of customer acquisition, right? Your sales forces or slacks, they can go talk to a CIO, suddenly you've got a huge customer, millions of dollars in revenue. Individual restaurant owners, much harder to attract, much harder to support, they churn off faster. Do you see that as a risk in this in this bet?
7: Customer acquisition is certainly more difficult when you're selling to small businesses, but the beauty of vertical software is two things. One, once you do get them to use your software, they often come and look at you to do other things. They don't wanna buy 50 different point solutions. In fact, they look oftentimes to tech providers to be their A to Z solution for everything that they need. And then second, if you truly believe the promise of technology, especially for small businesses, that not only can it help you cut costs, but it can also help you increase revenue because you have better data to run your business, then I think a lot of these small businesses will continue to grow, which ultimately also benefits a lot of these vertical software companies.
0: Nina, going back to your definition of those two categories of the sort of the SaaS leaders, whether it's the trailblazers, the original generation or the surfers, the slightly newer generation. I'm curious what your thesis is going into next year about sort of growth trends in general. I mean, we saw that the pandemic really accelerated a certain amount of growth. And now there's this question of how much that growth was a pull forward. How many of these trends are actually sustainable? How do you think those two categories of SaaS companies are going to be faring uh, going into next year?
7: Well, a lot of people have been talking about, of course, the shift from on-prem to the cloud for so long. And I was actually surprised to learn that, you know, as the CEO of AWS told us a few weeks ago, 85 to 95% of workloads actually still happen on-premise, which is pretty shocking. So I think we still have a lot of growth in that original segment. In terms of SaaS multiples over the next year and growth, I, I do think that a lot of these things that were pulled forward by COVID are permanent. And I think, if anything, you know, with a more hybrid workforce, remote workforce, and a lot of the different experiences that customers expect from small businesses and enterprises, the digital spend and digital IT spending is only going to go up.
2: Hey, finally, Nina, I'm fascinated by your view that uh, voice and A.I., are going to unlock a new uh, host of applications. I mean, we've been talking about voice recognition for a long time, but have we finally gotten to a point where it's going to be seamless, at least in the enterprise?
7: Well, that's the thing. We've been promised so much on the consumer side with some of the consumer AI tools. But on the enterprise, think about how much we do just talking every day in our business lives. And if you think about how much has shifted to Zoom, for example, sales, Companies like Gong, which listen to sales calls and use AI to unlock insights for revenue leaders, are really benefiting. And so I think we're finally at a point where the core AI technology, natural language processing, is good enough to be used in our business world today.
2: Uh, Just don't replace news anchors. That's all we ask. Uh, Nina, thanks. Good to see you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we have some news out about
0: the movie business. Spider-Man No Way Home, Sony's release this weekend, is off to a massive start. Sony saying that the film took in $50 million in Thursday night previews here in the U.S. That's the third highest preview gross of all time. Not a pandemic record, but of all time. Cinemark said the film's debut last night was its biggest opening night of all time for the theater chain. And AMC says the film is its biggest ever opening for a December release. Now, MKM analyst Eric Handler did sound cautious in a note out this morning. He has a sell rating on AMC, a neutral on Cinemark, and a buy rating on IMAX. He lowered his overall domestic box office estimate for the fourth quarter, and he warns that 2022 has good tentpole titles, but that it lacks depth, saying that there are only 73 wide release films planned for 2022, and that's about 40 percent below levels from between 2017 and 2019. But, Carl, if you just look at those big numbers out last night, of course, we don't know what's going to happen over the rest of the weekend, but we're hearing well north of one hundred and fifty million dollars that the domestic box office would be possible. And that's just really impressive, even if you think about those records that were set before the pandemic. Yeah,
2: it's interesting, uh, Nile to look at that screen right there and see the gains intraday. Uh, At the same time, Variety running a piece, as we speak, that Denmark is shutting down cinemas because of the the COVID uh, surge over there. We've seen, of course, Europe act much differently than other countries or, or continents.
1: Yeah, I mean, Spider-Man's greatest foe is Omicron, right? I mean, (laughs) I I think it's these are two monumental forces that are going to crash into each other. uh, And I think we're going to have to see. Maybe this weekend will be great. People have been hyped up to see this movie for months. It's the next big Marvel Phase 4 movie. What's going to happen next weekend? How are various cities and states going to handle people trying to gather indoors as Omicron takes over? We're just going to have to see.
0: Yeah, Nile, it's interesting because if you know, look at these big numbers from last night, a lot of those tickets were pre-bought. We had Tony Vincent tell us yesterday that they had such high pre-sales that they were really optimistic going into the weekend. But we have to specifically watch the drop-off from Friday to Saturday and then Saturday to Sunday, Carl. That is going to be key. And then, of course, the drop-off between this weekend to next weekend, that'll tell us a lot about what to expect for the rest of the year and into January. Yeah, uh,
2: and 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 whether or not we're in a period where uh, movies that are made for theaters, we've talked about this, Julia, are made for young people because uh, the uh, one argument would be that older people are maybe marginally less likely to go out to a theater. We will see.
0: Well, certainly Spider-Man is drawing that younger audience. Just, let's do market check. The Nasdaq is now up a full half a percent. That is quite an intraday turnaround, and Rivian experiencing its own correction today. It's down 12 percent. It's off 45 percent in the last month. It's now just an $80 billion market cap. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
5: Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at Canva.com. Designed for work. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken
4: sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
5: of a detour.
2: Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Julia Borston. Neelay Patel of The Verge is with us today. Get a check on the major averages at this hour. Quite a nice uh, mid-morning bounce. Not completely, but the NASDAQ has gone green. Session highs up 81. Dow session low was down 613. We've cut that uh, a little bit in half by 270 now is the loss. And S&P held 4,600, now 4,660. Let's get a news update this morning with Rahel Solomon. Hey, help
6: Hi, Carl. Good morning. And here's what's happening at this hour. Olive Garden and Longhorn Steakhouse parent Darden Restaurant seeing its shares fall about 5%. The company giving weak earnings guidance and announcing that CEO Gene Lee will retire Darden saying that it had underestimated the demand for takeaway and delivered meals, which made up 28 percent of Olive Garden's business this quarter. J.P. Morgan Chase has agreed to pay $200 million to federal regulators. It's part of a settlement of charges that the bank's brokerage unit allowed workers to use WhatsApp and other platforms to evade federal record-keeping laws. Shares of Novavax are up about 6 percent. The World Health Organization has granted an emergency use listing for a version of the company's COVID vaccine developed with Serum Institute of India. The move now paves the way for the vaccine's use in the U.N.'s COVAX program. And Purdue Pharma says that it will appeal a ruling that overturned its four and a half billion dollar opioid settlement with state and local governments. A judge said that protections given to the Sackler family shielding them from lawsuits are not permitted under the bankruptcy code. You're now up to date. Julia, I'll send it back to you.
0: Thanks, for Rahel. Meanwhile, Rivian shares are lower this morning after the company said it was cutting its production estimates. Phil LeBeau has more on the quarter. Phil?
8: Uh, Julia, when you take a look at those production estimates, the company was expecting to deliver about 1,200 vehicles, By the end of the year, in the fourth quarter, they're going to fall a few hundred shy of that. The reaction on Wall Street... Eh, they kind of expected that there might be some challenges there. But clearly, investors selling off on this uh, news, the stock down almost 12 percent. Look, there are three challenges that RJ Scaringe, the CEO, talked about yesterday during the conference call. First of all, slower production. That's the twelve hundred that they're not going to achieve. Ramping the supply chain. And then you've got increased inventory because of some of these supply chain challenges. That's the challenging or troubling news that came out of yesterday's report from Rivian. The positive news is that they are seeing demand in terms of people who want to buy the R1T or the R1S. The R1T is the electric pickup truck you're looking at right here. Combined, their orders have climbed to 71,000. For a point of reference, end of September, they were at 48,000. So there are people who are ordering those. The company also announcing yesterday that it will be building a second final assembly plant. This is going to be in Georgia, just east of Atlanta, 400,000 units capacity starts production in 2024. And one last note, guys, if you order an R1T or an R1S today, you are likely not going to get that vehicle until the end of 2023. That tells you how long it's going to take for this company to ramp up and achieve the level of volume that people, you know, perhaps were being a little bit more optimistic about. It's going to take some time.
2: Phil, I wonder how you're thinking about pre-orders in general as a metric to gauge strength, because they're not always refundable, but some are. Uh, on a dollar basis, Correct. they're different. And that's that's been creating some challenges for analysts.
8: Well, I think it creates a challenge for the retail investor, to be quite honest with you. I think the analysts understand that these are great indications of interest. But beyond that, there's going to be uh, some, it's going to take some time to achieve this. What I hear from retail investors is, hey, did you hear how many people are ordering this particular vehicle or I'm getting in line for this vehicle? And when you ask them, do you realize how long it's going to take? Oh, well, yeah, well, I hope to get in six months. They're not always clued in. It's going to take some time, especially with electric vehicles and especially a new company that's just ramping up production. It's going to take some time. So to answer your question, Carl, I think that the analysts... They like having this metric because it gives them some sense of the interest that's out there. The retail investor might be putting a little more stock into it than it should.
0: Neelay, what's your perspective here? I mean, the stock's down 12%. I'm so interested in what Phil just said about the delays. How much of a chance does Rivian has to compete as the traditional automakers really invest in the EV space
1: as well? I think the the positive side is that the Rivian R1T appears to be a great car. Everybody who's seen it, who's driven it, they love it. They think it's well-designed. It's really cool. The problem is that the entire EV industry right now is just massive hype. It's all chat, no hat, especially with trucks, right? The Ford F-150 Lightning hasn't shipped yet. The R1T is just barely shipping. It seems like it's shipping to a lot of Rivian employees, most of all. The Silverado is getting announced in January. That's not gonna ship for a long time. The Cybertruck, which I got I got the only shipping Cybertruck behind me, I think. At this point, what we're seeing is lots of announcements and no cars on the road. And the reality in the car business, as I'm sure Phil knows, is that getting cars on the road is very hard. The Mustang Mach-E, which I think is maybe the most successful launch of the past year, it had like pretty serious recall problems in that first generation. So I think it's put up time for the entire EV industry in this coming year.
8: Neelay, to play off of what you were saying there, the problem is batteries. The entire industry is scrambling to increase battery production. Jim Farley has talked about this at Ford. If they could get more batteries, they would sell more (laughs) Mach-E's. That is the challenge for the entire industry. And I'm not sure investors are fully understanding, and I'm talking about retail investors, just how long it's going to take to ramp up the, the level of battery production that the entire industry needs. That's one of the key advantages that Tesla has right now. They've been doing this for a long time. They've got that vertical integration. They are in a much better position than a number of other automakers.
2: Yeah, and that has uh, not come easy. That's been hard won, uh, one of the advantages of having been in the space as long as they have. Phil, thanks. Uh, Phil LeBeau uh, talking some Rivian today. Get a check on some buy now, pay later stocks uh, tumbling as the U.S. consumer watchdog launches a probe of the consumer data. We'll get some more on those names next. Don't go away. There may be trouble ahead for the trendy buy-now-pay-later space. Take a look at some of the names, although a firm has gone green. But uh, PayPal, Zip Afterpay, almost all in the red this morning after the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau did launch a probe into BNPL, a bureau aiming to uncover information on the risks versus the benefits of the company's products. They're specifically worried about consumers racking up debt in addition to data and regulatory concerns, and shares of all of them are down sharply for the week. Neely, I wonder what you make of this. Normally, our questions about the business have been about uh, credit and whether or not that's being accurately reflected in the business model, Uh, but this is something a little bit different regarding the use of data.
1: Yeah, I think you know on the tech side, what I always hear is buy now, pay later is faster, better payment rails, a better tech solution for companies that don't want to deal with sort of the antiquated credit card systems and payment processors that exist. On the consumer side, I, I do think there are a lot of questions that have yet to be answered. And I think what, all you're seeing here is the, what the, the stocks are priced at no regulation. Now they're starting to get priced at some regulation, particularly around data, which is more and more sensitive around the world, not just the United States.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because on the consumer side, it wasn't so long ago that we were talking about buy now, pay later is in a lot of ways replacing the credit cards. But I think that there's no doubt that regulation is a potential risk for all of these companies. And there are those two issues at play. There's the data. Of course, this is a country that's just starting to really pay attention to data regulation and privacy issues. And then there's also that issue of what this could mean for people's credit scores. And I think that, you know, I would just want to point out what the CFPB director, Rohit Chopra, said. He said this is the new version of the old layaway plan, but with modern, faster twists, where the consumer gets the product immediately, but gets the debt immediately, too. And I think that is really at the center of the concern here, Carl.
2: Yeah. Uh, Just another example, uh, Nile, of... Innovation, in in this case, payments and regulators trying to keep up because the treadmill gets the speed keeps getting increased all the time.
1: Yeah. You know, when I when I talk to some of the crypto folks, they always tell me, you know, there's are speed running the history of finance. Well, I think buy now, pay later, is speed running the history of the credit card industry. And we're just seeing it happen at, at light speed. And the regulators are waking up faster than maybe anyone expected.
0: Well, as we head into break, let's take a look at some of the biggest laggards on the NDX. This week, Chinese tech and Adobe leading stocks to the downside. We will be back in two minutes. for a gut check on Oracle. The journal reporting that Oracle's in talks to buy digital medical records company Cerner, that deal worth an estimated $30 billion. It would be the biggest ever for Oracle if it does happen. Now, Cerner is currently valued at $23 billion. So Oracle would be paying a premium here. The move signals Oracle's increased interest in the healthcare sector, where it already has a significant presence. Shares of Oracle are down more than 5% all that news, while Cerner leads the NDX. Carl?
2: Uh, Julia, after the break, wire well, next guest says story stocks are dead. We're going to dive into Peloton's decline and whether it can once again endure another hype cycle, up 4% today. Tech Check continues after this. Pretty good piece on The Verge right now this morning. Amazon shareholders calling for an independent audit of how company treats its workers, reporting about a new resolution that's demanding a third-party independent audit of Amazon's productivity quotas, surveillance practices for its workers. Uh, Neelay, the piece points out if Amazon doesn't challenge it, it could come up for a vote in
1: May. Yeah. you know, Amazon made this uh, big change to its leadership principles, said they want to be Earth's safest place to work. That looks like a promise to investors, a promise to employees. Fundamentally, what's underneath that is Amazon is a metrics and software-driven company. And when you have software managing people, you tend to run the people pretty ragged. And we see that over and over again with Amazon. Uh, I think a lot of shareholders are pushing companies to be more responsible. And this is just one more example of that happening at scale. I wonder, is
2: that something that, yeah, Neil, if, if automation uh, as a management tool becomes more pervasive, ex Amazon, that could be something that workers respond to in this way uh, in mass over time.
1: Oh, yeah. It's, it's happening not just in warehouses and on delivery trucks. It is happening in knowledge work fields as well. One of my favorite pandemic products is mouse jigglers. You can go on Amazon, uh, you can buy a mouse jiggler, you can make your mouse move every six minutes so that your remote productivity uh, job with tracking software thinks you're working even though you're not. That is uh, uh, just response to demand.
0: You like, that's a little bit terrifying. Um, I'm curious, though, putting this in context of everything else we're seeing in the tech space right now. You know, we were just talking about Starbucks having some of those workers unionized. We've talked about Google walkouts in the past. There's obviously this labor shortage. How do you think this gives us a sense of what kinds of trends we could expect next year, not just at Amazon, but at other tech companies as well?
1: I think one of the biggest stories of 2021 was the beginnings of labor movements inside of tech companies. It almost all started uh, with remote work policies. The tech companies said, come back to work. Their Their employees said, look, we have software jobs we don't want to live in San Francisco. We want to live wherever we want to. And that actually caused a pretty enormous amount of conflict inside of the companies that bled out into stories in all kinds of other zones. It's the first time we've seen that kind of conflict. It is the mechanism uh, we've seen for a lot of reporting into how the companies work. What we're going to see now in 22, Apple just delayed its return to work. They gave everybody a $1,000 work-from-home equipment bonus. That story is not going to stop. right Now that the employees have learned they have a voice, they can get Uh, concessions from management, starting with work from home. Now they're going to start to try to get concessions everywhere else. And we've seen it not only in tech companies, we've seen it across uh, the entire American workplace. Yeah, uh, fascinating. Uh, And not all bad. I mean, a lot of people uh, championing
2: workers getting voices in in new and different ways. Uh, Good piece uh, on The Verge this morning. In the meantime, turning to Peloton, uh, down nearly 75% year-to-date. Our next guest indicates the decline is part of a broader collapse in pandemic story stocks and meme stocks as a whole, going so far as to say the era of the story stock is over. Ranjan Roy joins us from Margins. Ranjan, what do you mean by that?
9: if we look at Peloton, in the last couple of weeks, the stock is down nearly 40% after their disastrous Q4 earnings. And Peloton represents better than anyone else what a pandemic story stock is. It had cool branding. It was going to revolutionize our quarantine life with connected fitness. It had this amazing story. And it was a solid business. And it is a solid business. It's still trading around six-time sales. You know, they quadrupled their revenue over the last two years in any other context, it would be a great business. But because it got caught up in all of the story stock hype, you have a stock that dropped 75 percent and now appears like it's in turmoil. And I think the thing we have to look at is every single one of these story stocks, meme stocks, hedge fund hotels, We the drops in the valuations, what kind of companies are we actually left with?
2: What do you make of what they did with the period, the window they had, when their stock was a much stronger currency? And and do CEOs have a responsibility? I'm thinking of Musk off the top of my head to say, you know what, I think the valuation is too rich at this point.
9: That's the most important question because Peloton when your valuation goes from 6 billion to 50 billion you got to sell more bikes. They invested 425 million dollars into a new factory in Ohio. They bought uh, exercise equipment maker Precore for 400 million. They tripled their inventory. They delivered on more bikes and getting them there, but there's not the demand. Their growth is decelerating and their CFO in the last earnings call said 2022 is going to be hard to forecast. Of course, it's going to be hard to forecast. Even next week, I'm going to Boston to see my family. It's hard to forecast <laughs> right now. And and, and of, like, But you get locked into that valuation. You have to get to $50 billion. That doesn't mean you have to triple your inventory and try to meet that. You could try, still try to be agile, flexible, and tell the market, you are an extrinsic value on my business, and we're going to stay the course and stick with our strategy.
0: I mean, Ranjan, yes, of course, there is so much uncertainty right now. And even around the Omicron virus, you know, the the variant, how much that's going to mean that people stay home, maybe their Pelotons are more valuable. But fundamentally, what you're saying in your critique of the company is that they didn't invest enough in innovation. They were so focused on customer acquisition, they weren't focused enough on retention and innovation. But as you look at what Pelton has coming out, you know, they have these new pieces of hardware. They're having the new sort of connected weights come out. They have new services like boxing. I mean, don't they have enough in the pipe that, you know, does take a while to develop?
9: That's the thing. They keep introducing new things and have new products and boxing and all these things yeah. in the pipeline. But as a longtime user and a fan, the core biking experience has not changed in the last five years significantly. And I, I think every single one of these stocks, every one who saw their valuation skyrocket They have been collapsing. And I mean, we started this talking about the story stock era is dead. And I think it's really important because just since November 30th, when Jerome Powell retired the word transitory and said inflation is here to stay, look at it. GameStop is down 46%. Coinbase is down 30%. Robinhood is down 40%. Tesla is down 20%. Zoom's down 19%. Every one of those stocks is quietly collapsing. And I think it's really important right now to remember that in all of those collapses, a lot of people are losing a lot of money. And and every single one of these stocks has been around being fun. The whole concept of a meme stock is fun, exciting, and bringing people together. But the collapse is happening right now. We're kind of watching it in real time. It's, there's no markets in turmoil, Chiron below me, because the big tech companies are kind of supporting the overall market. But for the Pelotons, it's the perfect poster child that the
1: collapse is here. It's already happening. I want to push on like a, a finer definition of meme stock with you. You got your Pelotons and your Zooms, right? Pandemic stories. Peloton had insane demand; they couldn't ship a bike. They had they, suddenly their stock was up. They had the capital to go invest in supply. That's one kind of story. On the other hand, you've got AMC, GameStop, the retail investor craze driving the prices far away from their fundamentals. Do you see a difference there? Oh, yeah. And I think that's what's going to sort out which companies actually make it
9: through Peloton, Sex in the City response clap ad, ad aside and whatever other kind of weird PR things and issues they've been having. Is a solid company.
1: That's what I'm
9: saying. (laughs) Yeah, maybe maybe, I think Ryan Reynolds might have missed that one. I uh, Amazon. (laughs) There's a famous story. The stock dropped ninety percent. Bezos was even tweeting this a few weeks ago, (laughs) and then they came back. Amazon showed us that even a ninety percent stock drop that can live completely outside of the actual company itself. It happens in the markets, but the company itself was solid. And I do think I think the key distinction here is. Is Peloton, and it's I think it's around 4X sales right now, that's a reasonable company. If that up and down stock price roller coaster never happened, they could actually be in a pretty good position. They just quadrupled revenue. Everything would be looking rosy, but instead everything feels like it's in turmoil. And I agree, the AMCs, the GameStops, the pure narrative-driven companies – What happens when those collapse and there's nothing underneath them? I think that will be the huge distinction. Every investor who's been watching any of this stuff over the last few years, it's separating companies into those two buckets and seeing where is there a real business that you could build off of.
2: Well, given the uh, news from and just like that, uh, it's been a roller coaster for (laughs) Peloton this week alone. Uh, Ron, John, thanks. Good to see you. Ron, John, Roy. One more thing this morning, uh, Boeing taking flight in the metaverse. This Reuters story featuring the manufacturer's plan for a new digital ecosystem with 3D digital designs being built by robots in the real world while mechanics are linked through Microsoft HoloLens VR sets. Uh, Boeing hopes to implement that strategy in as little as two years as it aims to reassert itself. Neelay, one of the more specific examples I've read so far, at least, about how a large
1: corporate might use the metaverse, so to speak. Yeah, I, I think they're using the word to, to generate some hype at the end of the year. Uh, look, Hollins is great. Maybe it'll make the mechanics work better. Actually shifting Boeing's entire manufacturing process, it's going to take longer than two yeah. years.
2: What do you think, Julia? We're going to hear more about more like that?
0: Yes, this is really about the use of AR, VR, not full metaverse. But we're going to be talking a lot more about the metaverse next week, Carl. We're going to be doing a deep dive. Uh,
2: the Next week's going to be big. Between Nike earnings and Carnival and PCE, have a good weekend. You've been listening
0: to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m.
7: Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for
0: Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.